This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's hard to get people to care unless they or a member of their family has been impacted by these laws or been charged. But so many of them have been now that I think people are starting to look at this issue in a different way. So I actually feel optimistic. Welcome to the Esther Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This week, my guest is Angela Davis. And, and before I go any further, I want to clear up any possible confusion. Uh, there are a number of famous Angela Davises. This is not the Angela Davis you know from the civil rights era and, and from controversies around the Black Panthers. That is Angela Y. Davis. We used to teach it at UC Santa Cruz, where I, I went to school. Uh, this is Angela J. Davis, the former director of the D.C. Public Defender Service, a professor of law at American University. And she's the editor of a remarkable new book entitled Policing the Black Man, which pulls together very, very deeply researched essays on virtually every aspect of how black men and, and how black boys interact with the criminal justice system. It's a really revelatory comprehensive look at the subject. If you, if you want to learn more about that, I really recommend it. In this conversation, I, I use the book and the range of ground it covers as a framework to talk with Davis about our criminal justice system and how it really works or doesn't work, uh, particularly for black men. Something in the conversation I'd love you to pay particular attention to. It's something that as I've begun focusing more on this issue, I have found is the most important revelation it is that prosecutors are the key decision makers here. I think it's natural for us to think of the system and its inequalities as, as driven by police. Police are who we see out there when, when there are big conflagrations. Police tend to be at the center of it. A, a lot of the um, stop, don't shoot and Black Lives Matter protests have been about abuses by the police. But as Davis explains, that's actually not where a lot of the key inequalities in the system are driven from. They're driven by prosecutors who have this extraordinary discretionary power, much more than we tend to realize. And, and so any reforms really need to focus there. But before we get to, to Angela, a couple quick requests, including one, one very big one, one that I am incredibly excited about. In the next few months, Vox is going to be starting will be by far our most ambitious audio project yet, a daily explainer podcast. If you're a podcast producer or a host and you like Vox's mission, not actually not just like, and you believe like you are into Vox's mission to explain the news and you have ideas of how to do it here, we want to hear from you. Check out voxmedia.com slash careers. Again, voxmedia.com slash careers. We have listings for, for a host, for an executive producer, and you might be the right person to, to join the team. This is a very cool, very exciting project. So I, I would would love if some of you were into it. Again, that's voxmedia.com slash careers. Uh, on the audio note, I tend to do 
plugs for all of our shows and tell you to listen to Worldly, which you should, and The Weeds, and, and I think you're interesting. But I want to do a specific one today. I was on the train the other day, and I was listening to I Think You're Interesting, which is Todd Vanderwerf's culture podcast. And he he did a podcast with Errol Morris. It's actually maybe a month or two ago back now, but I didn't listen to it until now. And it's just fantastic. It's about memory. It's about photography. It's about filmmaking. It's about nostalgia. It's almost about, I, I almost want to say it's about what it means to be human, but it's certainly about what it means to make art about being human. Um, it's one of my favorite podcast episodes I've heard in a long time, and I really recommend you check it out. That's I Think You're Interesting by Todd Vanderwerf, and it's his interview with Errol Morris. All that said, let's jump into to the Angela Davis interview. And, and I started here in a particular place. She began in the public defender's office in D.C. And so I asked her what that experience taught her about the criminal justice system. When I was a public defender, I noticed a lot of things that disturbed me. Um, I did the work. I, I came to do the work because I wanted to help poor people. And I thought helping poor people charged with crimes was the greatest calling. Um, what I saw was unjust treatment of my clients. I saw, first of all, I only had African-American clients. I think I may have had two white clients in all the years that I uh, was a public defender. Wow. Whenever I saw white clients, I saw very different treatment. I particularly saw very different treatment of my black clients when the alleged victims of their crimes were white. Right. Those cases would be prosecuted more vigorously. Um, there would not be good plea offers. So I saw a lot of in injustices. But the one thing I saw that really fascinated me in, in a negative sense that I, that I was stunned by was the incredible power of prosecutors, the unchecked power of prosecutors, which is what led me to study that field. A question I think that somebody in the audience could have hearing that is, well, did you just have black clients because the crime rate is so much higher among African-Americans? You have a great chapter on the book on that, but but can you talk through that a bit? Because I think that it's important as we set the basis for this conversation to, to sort of set a, a framework around what are crime rates in the country? And so right. what might we expect uh, in this position where we were just administering justice in a race-neutral way? Right. So I think people see all these black people being arrested, all these black people in prisons, and they think, oh, that means black people are committing all of the crimes. Well, actually, it's sort of a, a vicious cycle, and it's not quite that simple. If the only people who police officers are arresting, stopping, searching, and arresting are African-American, then of course they're going to be the only people who are in the system and the only people who are ultimately imprisoned. And, and that's the problem. You know, it's not that whites don't commit crimes. Let's let's take the, the crime of drug possession, for example. All the statistics show that African-Americans do not use drugs in any greater percentage than whites do. You know, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, other organizations that have all come to that conclusion. But because of the way that laws are enforced, and I focus on drugs for a reason, because they're, the war on drugs caused our prisons and jails to be filled up. So drug offenses, both possession and other drug offenses, are responsible for filling up our prisons and jails to where they are today. But whites who use drugs, according to all of these organizations, in the same proportion as blacks, are not arrested, they're not stopped, they are not pulled into the criminal justice system. So you have 
similarly situated people who are behaving the same way, doing the same acts, who are treated differently. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the biggest problems in our criminal justice system, the unwarranted racial disparities in our system. Um, so I think, you know, when people look at a lot of these statistics on the back end, they're reaching some unfair conclusions. So I want to hold here for a second because there's a really fascinating chapter in your book, I think by Mark Maurer, is mm-hmm. that the way you say his name, uh, about this. And so first I want to say I was arrested for drug possession when I was a kid. Uh, I had pot uh, and nobody charged me with anything. Uh, you know, there's a lot of privilege embedded in that story. A lot of people I've known as I've uh, gotten older, not as much now, but, mm-hmm. but when I was younger and was in college, used drugs, nothing happened to any of them. So first, certainly my experience is that there's a large amount of drug use uh, among different populations. And what, what Maurer argues, as I understood it, and I'm curious if this accords with your experience, is that one of the things that happens is that particularly in these early, less serious crimes, right? Do you want to charge somebody for having pot or do you want to charge somebody for having cocaine or having been drunk and disorderly, which I have certainly been when I was in college? I think I'm making myself sound cooler in college than I actually was, but but I, I do it to make a point, which is there's a lot of discretion at that point in the system. And then later on, if you do something a little bit more serious, when the prosecutor or, or others in the system are deciding how to treat you, the question of a record becomes very important. Yeah. And the question of how you are viewed at that earlier moment, whether you are viewed as somebody dangerous or some a good kid just making a mistake, becomes very important. And, and that's where um, that seems to have in the literature a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of effect on who ends up being charged with crimes and arrested for crimes and being seen as criminal later in life. Was that true when you were a public defender? Did you see that? Absolutely. I mean, of course, we didn't see the people who weren't getting arrested. We wouldn't see the college kids because they never got that far, the the very point that you're making. Um, And I think Mark makes an excellent point. Mark Maurer, the head of the Sentencing Project, who's done great work on this issue for so many years, is that when it comes to murder, if you murder someone and you get caught, whether you're black or white, rich or poor, most of the time, although although I've, there have been instances, and in my book, Arbitrary Justice, I talk about instances of a white college kid at Georgetown who actually murdered someone and didn't get indicted, but that rarely happens. Usually the very serious crimes, prosecutors are going to charge you, but with the lower level crimes and even some of the lower level crimes that carry a lot of time, like a lot of these drug offenses, particularly distribution cases carry a lot of time, there's a huge amount of discretion. And so if you've got the college kid who most of the time isn't going to get arrested at all, by the way, usually. Yeah, I just was really bad at this. (laughs) Usually there's no arrest at all. Uh, But even if there is an arrest, um, and that's why I focus on prosecutors so much, The prosecutor has a tremendous amount of discretion. Prosecutors are the most powerful individuals in our criminal justice system because they decide not only what to charge, they can decide not to charge at all. They can decide to decline charges altogether. They decide what to charge the person with. For example, if you were caught with a certain amount of drugs, the prosecutor's got a lot of discretion. That prosecutor can charge you with possession, which is a misdemeanor that may carry less than a year in jail. Depending on the amount, she might charge you with possession with intent to distribute, which is a felony that if it's cocaine, for example, there's a mandatory minimum sentence, oftentimes a very long sentence at the end. 
or the prosecutor can decide not to charge you at all. And that decision is made behind closed doors. There's no transparency. It's not an open court, and the prosecutor doesn't have to answer to anyone. So that's when those disparities start to take place, and that's what's so frightening about it to me is that the most powerful decisions that prosecutors make, they make those decisions behind closed doors, and they're not accountable to anyone. I mean, theoretically, if they're elected, they're accountable to their constituents. But when prosecutors run for office, they don't talk about their charging policies and their plea bargaining policies. And no one knows. No one has the information to really be able to judge whether they're doing their jobs fairly. And so that's why I think we really need to focus more on prosecutors because, yes, police officers have a tremendous amount of discretion on the street. And that's so incredibly important. But police officers only have the power to bring people to the courthouse door. It is the prosecutor who decides whether they remain there and what happens to them after that. But this is something that I think is its interesting in the book. It's interesting in the system more, more broadly, which is I think one of the lessons I took away from reading the book is just how much discretion there is at every level in the system. And, and I knew it a bit, but, but, but it really drives it home. There's discretion in whether the police decide to stop you for a stop and frisk or because they see a broken taillight on your car. There's a decision of whether they decide to search your car when they see that broken taillight on your car or just let you go and tell you, hey, your taillight's out. You might want to get that fixed. There's a decision of if they find something, do you get arrested? I mean, on and on and on and on down the line. And we look at our laws and we think, well, the law is just written there. If you hold drugs, it's a crime. You go to jail. If you shoplift, it's a crime. You go to jail. But from the policeman to the prosecutor and, and on and on and on down the line, there is all this decision-making. And it's the decision-making, you, you have this good chapter on implicit bias and other kinds of unconscious racism, but it's in the decision-making where even people who are not, who would never think of themselves as racist. There's this fascinating research in the book about how black boys are seen as older yes. than white boys are, yes. right? And so they're seen much more as, as an adult and thus more dangerous and also more accountable for their actions. Yes. And, and that seems like a big piece of this, that we have this idea of a system of laws. And what we really have is a system of laws mediated through discretion. And that that's where the um, problem can really come in. It's, it's all of the above. It's the laws, and I certainly want to talk about that because mm -hmm. some of the laws, particularly with regard to policing and racial profiling and so on, are terrible. But you're right. It is the discretionary decision-making by criminal justice officials at every step of the process. The police, the prosecutors, the judges to a certain degree on down. I mean, the, the reason why I focus so much on prosecutors is because— with the laws being passed, the mandatory minimum laws being passed that require judges to give a certain sentence if you're convicted, that took away a lot of discretion from judges. Judges who are sentencing defendants on uh, offenses that carry a mandatory minimum have no discretion. They have to sentence them to that amount of time. It's the prosecutor deciding to charge them with that offense, right, and them either pleading guilty to that offense or being convicted that causes them to face that time. But police officers absolutely have an incredible amount of discretion. They don't have to arrest a person just because they have probable cause to believe they've committed a crime. They don't have to stop them. It's it, And that's where racial profiling comes in. It is the decision-making by these officials at every step. And that's why it's important that we have people at, in this system 
who are good and mindful people who are not making decisions based on race uh, or based on class. And unfortunately, that's not the case now in our system. So the the first chapter of the book, uh, well, except for the introduction, is by Brian Stevenson. He's yes. a, a past guest on this podcast. If, if folks have not listened to that discussion, I really recommend doing so. It's a pretty chilling chapter. Yes. And it's a backdrop for a lot of this discussion that, mm-hmm. that we have a tendency to come and say, well, what does this all look like to us in 2017, right? Yes. What does it all look like right now? What are the numbers right now? What is happening right now? Right. And he makes this argument that there is this continuous thread in American history going back to slavery that ways in which discriminatory policy was justified was mm-hmm. by creating a racist ideology around African-Americans being more criminal, less intelligent, et cetera, et cetera. And, and can you trace a bit of the legal side of this? Because he goes through the black codes and he mm-hmm. he goes through something that felt much more like a straight line to me than, than mm-hmm. what I'd read before in a way that I, I think is important context when we ask, how should we look at right. disparate outcomes here today? And should we see that as unusual and aberrant, or should we see it as a continuation of something that has been built in this country over a long period of time? Yeah, Brian's, I was so pleased and excited when Brian decided to join this project. And I specifically asked him to write the chapter giving the historical context. And I think he did a beautiful job of, as you put it, drawing a straight line from slavery to the black codes and convict leasing after slavery to the the lynching to Jim Crow straight through to the disparities that we see in the criminal justice system today and to the death penalty. It's a continuum with the same behavior, you know, obviously in different contexts, right, and and, in different ways. And I think it's so important for people to understand that historical context in order to understand where we are today. I mean, it's a depressing chapter in many ways because it sort of shows how, although things obviously have changed, we're not in slavery now, um, that so much of it is the same in terms of the treatment of Black men and that historical kind. And again, I think it lays a perfect foundation for why we're focusing on Black men and boys because that was always a big question. The, the, The history of this country, there's a particular history of the treatment of Black men in particular from slavery to the present day. And I think that chapter does a great job of just illustrating that. I mean, in a, in a chilling way and in, 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 in many ways, but also in a very understandable way. But I, one thing that I want to zero in on in that chapter is what I think he shows in different ways is that a lot of work has gone in in this country, real work effort into creating a perception of black men and black boys is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, to the point that white communities of people who I'm sure thought of themselves as good, upstanding Christian people mm-hmm. would kill young black men for looking at white women right. in the wrong way, for speaking impudently. And I, I and that was justified on the idea that, you know, this there was this barely restrained criminality and right. danger. I mean, they were trying to keep themselves safe. That's how right. they explained it to themselves. And, and look, we are not. For, for the overwhelming most part there today, but it is a backdrop to a world in which it is easier for people in and out of the criminal justice system right. to see more danger when they yeah. look at a young black 
boy playing with a toy gun than when they look at a young white boy playing with a toy right. gun. Or when they look at Brian uh, tells a story in there of just sitting in his car listening to Sly and the Family Stone and having the police called on him. Yes. And that wouldn't happen to me. Right. You know, and, and it's Catherine Russell Brown, who actually wrote the chapter on implicit bias, has done a lot of work around this, the color of crime. I mean, when people see black, they see criminality. Whether it's a child like Tamir Rice or whoever it is, and I think Brian does a great job of illustrating that in his chapter, as as in many of the other chapters. You say that a lot of work has gone into it. I think, I guess I wouldn't put it that way because when you say a lot of work has gone into it, it sounds like it was like this intentional, like let's do this intentionally. I don't know that that was the case. That you know, people decided we are going to. In, Know, make a conscious decision that we're going to have black people be dangerous. I just think it's the perception that people have always had of black pe people, that sheer racism, which makes people see black and see danger, see a black boy and see a dangerous man. I mean, you mentioned the studies that are in Kristen Henning's chapter, Boys to Men, where she talks about how all these studies were done where police officers and others would always overestimate the age of a black boy and underestimate the age of a white boy because they just see, they don't see a human being. They don't see a child. And so this is, you know, a serious problem that goes on today. And, you know, implicit bias is a huge part of this problem. These unconscious views, frankly, everyone has implicit bias, right? Everyone has unconscious views uh, that they're, you know, by definition, unconscious views. They're not even aware that they're having these views. And it comes about as a result of being exposed to all these stereotypes and being exposed in the media and elsewhere. Um, black people have implicit bias. And it's not just about race. It can be about body type, size, hair color, tone, and skin tone. But that implicit bias that's so deep-seated that causes a police officer, for example, to see a black kid and see a criminal or a prosecutor to see a black kid and decide, well, I'm going to prosecute this person. When officials in the criminal justice system are making decisions because of that implicit bias that they have, that's where it becomes a huge problem in our system. And it's particularly a problem in the legal system because there's no legal remedy for implicit bias, right? So if you can prove, for example, that a cop intended to stop a person because they were black, how, how are you going to do that? No cop's going to say, I stopped this person because they're black. No prosecutor's going to say, well, I chose to prosecute this person because he's black, but I'm going to let the white person go. No one's going to say that. And honestly, I think in most instances, they're not even aware that that's not what's going on. It's those unconscious views. And our criminal justice system provides a remedy for intentional discrimination, but not for unintentional discrimination, not for unconscious bias. Sherilyn Eiffel and Jenny Lee in their chapter, Do Black Lives Matter to the Courts, explain this beautifully about how the courts, you know, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court has developed over the years, I would say devolved instead of evolved to the point where you know, the kind of bias that we see most often in the system, which is not necessarily that intentional type that we saw that's described in, in Brian's chapter, there's no remedy for it in the courts, or the remedies are very weak, I should say. And, and that's what the problem is. Vacations can be tricky. 
You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Let me ask you about another side of this that, that I think complicates the story somewhat. Pretty when we think about mass incarceration. Uh, we had this huge crime wave in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Murder went way, way up. Armed robbery, assault, all of it went up. There's a tremendous amount of crime in heavily African-American communities. And, and things like the crime bill and the harsher sentencing measures, they passed with support from African-American elected officials, from African-American activist groups. There's this famous quote from Jesse Jackson where he says that it's his great shame that when he hears footsteps behind him at night, he is comforted when he turns around and it's a white man. There's a way of looking at this that it's about racism, and then there's a way of looking at this that, that there was a real crime problem that had somewhat mysterious origins and somewhat mysterious uh, reasons for its decline, but that the explanation is there and this sort of new view of it, that it's all implicit bias and it's all racism, is ahistorical. Mm-hmm. So I'm just to make sure I'm understanding your question. You're saying the new view is that it's implicit that, that, bias. That, that but... the conversation we're having mm-hmm. does not account for the context in which a lot of these bills were passed. They were not. They were passed with a lot of support from the black community. They were seen as protective of a black community that in some ways was underpoliced, um, and that was often the victim of huge, huge crime waves. Right. And so there can be a, a version of this where it looks like it was all done unto, but there was also agency here. How do you think about that? How do you think about that? This, this that is period? what I think about that period. Um, you're right. You know, a lot of the crime that was going on was going on in predominantly black communities, right? Were you the the drug crimes, the violence as a result of those drug crimes were going on in black communities. So you had the black caucus when those the terrible crime bill was passed, supporting it. Uh, because they thought at the time that they were doing something to protect the black communities. I think the problem with that crime bill and so many of those those crime bills that were passed even on the state level was that they were passed without any information, without any evidence, without any hearings, right? So the problem with these bills was that there was no research done to show what would be the impact of passing these bills on those communities, right? Um, At the time, 
No one could predict. And, and some of the what we would consider to be very progressive members of the Black Caucus supported it did not realize at the time when they were passing these bills that had mandatory minimum sentences and all of that, that it would result in the huge racial disparities that it produced, right? I don't think there was an awareness that, um, I think a lot of people when they were passing mandatory minimum sentences, they, they thought this will, this will make it fair because we've got all these judges and the judges have all this discretion. And when, when there's a white defendant before them, they're giving them a break and they're not giving a black defendant a break. Now everybody's going to be treated the same. And so this is going to bring equality and it's going to bring fairness. So you had sort of this weird alliance between people on the left and the right saying for different reasons, deciding they wanted these mandatory minimum sentences as well. What happened was it didn't get rid of discretion. It simply transferred that that discretion from uh, judges to prosecutors. And now prosecutors could decide, as they always had, but now they had even more tools, more ammunition to do this, whether to charge and what to charge the person with. And the plea bargaining power, which we haven't talked about at all. Prosecutors, when they decide to charge, they also have the power to offer what's called plea, plea offers. And right, so they have a tremendous amount of discretion. So they can pile on all of these charges, these mandatory minimum offenses. A defendant facing 10, 20, 30 mandatory years in prison to life, maybe more, is of course going to feel incredible pressure to, to get out of that. And so a prosecutor will say, I'll tell you what, I'll drop three of these 10-year mandatory minimums if you plead guilty to one. A person facing that kind of time is, even if they're not guilty or even if they have a defense, they're probably going to take that plea because going to trial is risky business. If they go to trial, they'll be convicted of all of those offenses and they'll spend the rest of their lives in prison. This has happened. There's so many stories about that, that, about that happening. And so what happened was the power was transferred to prosecutors they would make these plea offers. 95% of all cases in our criminal justice system are resolved by way of guilty pleas. People think all these trials are going on. They're watching Law and Order and seeing trials. There's not a lot of trials going on. There's a lot of people pleading guilty because they're facing these incredible, incredible amounts of time in prison. So my point is this. I think it happened at that time because no one could predict where we would end up. And then decades later, I think people were looking back saying, we're not any safer, right? Um, you know, people well, hasn't crime dropped a lot? Crime has dropped, but if you talk to criminologists, they'll tell you there's a real complicated mixture of reasons why crime is, has dropped. It's certainly not just higher sentences, and most will tell you it's not just this. It's a combination of economic reasons, the economy, a lot of different reasons come together because crime goes up and down, you know, if you look historically— and there's complicated reasons for that. But if you look at, you know, just just mandatory minimum sentences, no one will tell you that, you know, that's why crime dropped, especially when you look at all the negative consequences as a result of that, right? Lives being thrown away for years, the collateral consequences, families being destroyed, you know, people not being able to reenter society. So if you look at those, all the harm, certainly... There's no comparison. So I guess my point is that people are now looking back, and you had you had President Clinton not quite apologizing for his role in in you know the crime bill, not quite, not quite enough of an apology, but acknowledging that it was a mistake. You had Hillary Clinton saying that, but you also have African American legislators who who now are looking back saying. 
that was a mistake. And that's why when we when legislators pass these laws, they need to be careful to look at the impact, the racial impact of it and, and other impacts as well. And that didn't happen. And now we're paying the price. So I want to focus in on, on prosecutors because I think that if you read the book, if you read your chapter of it and, and other books that have begun to come out, there's a couple new books about the importance of prosecutors in the system. This is a conceptual pivot that a lot of us need to make, and it's hard. Uh, you have a great line in the book where you say that the reality is that prosecutors are the most powerful officials in the criminal justice system, bar none. Police officers have the power to arrest and bring individuals to the courthouse door, but prosecutors decide whether they enter the door and what happens to them if they do. I think yes. most of us look at the system and we see police. Yes. And increasingly criminal justice experts look at it and they see prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So I really want to begin at the beginning of the chain and go through it almost step by step. Okay. In America, how are prosecutors chosen? So um, there are federal prosecutors and there are state and local prosecutors. I focus on state and local because only about 10% of all crimes are handled in, in, in the federal system. 90% are on the state and local level. And the vast majority of those prosecutors, and there are thousands of them because there are county prosecutors, you know, state and local ones, the vast majority of them are elected officials. Why is that? Why is that? Well, there's a whole history, right, going back to Jeffersonian democracy and why, you know, the, you know, this whole notion that we the, we want to elect our officials and to hold them accountable, right? It's it's, you know, the, that's the system that we that developed over the years. You're asking why? I am. They, I, I know. I know that elected? we take it a little bit for granted now. But you were a defendant, right? You're the person across from the prosecutor. I was a defense attorney. Sorry, I was a defense never attorney. A defendant, I apologize. <laughs> Sorry, a defense attorney. You yes, weren't elected. I was not elected. It's an important the... position. Correct. Well, right. And I was aligned. And I understand how these offices work. You have a head of a prosecutor's office who's the chief prosecutor. They're called state's attorney in some jurisdiction. They call district attorneys. They're elected. They then hire the assistant right. DAs who work in their office. I think Florida is probably the only state I know of that has an elected public defender. Usually public defenders are selected a very different way. Um, but and not all other countries elect, right? Yeah, no. The, the prosecutorial systems in other countries, I don't know a lot about them, but none of them have a system like we do. Uh, but yes, we because, you know, we're a democracy. So the idea behind, you know, this powerful person who has all of this power being elected theoretically sounds like a good idea, right? You know, we're in a democracy. We hold those accountable to whom we grant power. The prosecutor is very powerful, so they're elected. The problem with that um, is that unlike most other elected officials, what prosecutors do on a daily basis is not really very, very transparent to the people who, who are supposed to be holding them accountable. And that's a huge problem. The most important decisions that prosecutors make is that charging decision that you mentioned and the plea bargaining decision. And those decisions are not made in open court. I mean, even if you wanted to like just sit around and court watch and watch your prosecutor so you can see what they're doing, you would never know how they make those decisions because those decisions are made behind closed doors. And so there's no way for us to hold prosecutors accountable if they're charging one person at a low level and another person who's done the same thing at a high level. We have no way of knowing that, right, as ordinary citizens, the constituents who elected that person. And I think that's the problem. 
You know, I when I talk to, about this issue a lot, and particularly some of my prosecutor friends, they say, well, I am held accountable because I'm an elected official. And if my constituents don't like what I'm doing, they can vote me out. Well, that's that's easier said than done. And that's very theoretical, because as I said, when that prosecutor, that chief prosecutor runs for office, most of the time, except recently, it's, it's changing a little bit recently, and I want to talk about that. But most of the time over the years, when prosecutors run for office, they run on, I'm tough on crime. And if there's anyone opposing them, and Ron Wright in his chapter talks about how in most his research shows that so many of these prosecutors run unopposed for decades. But even when they have an opponent, they're, they run on, I'm tougher on crime. And so no one's talking about the really important issues, you know, the important functions that they perform every day. And I, I tell this, I say this all the time. I mean, one, uh, one, I don't want to call it a shining light because there is no shining light from, you know, these horrible killings of unarmed black men. But one thing that happened, and particularly with Ferguson, when Michael Brown was killed, and that prosecutor, that was one of the first cases that got a whole lot of attention. I mean, Trayvon Martin did, but, you know, th that wasn't a police officer. When, Michael, when that prosecutor decided not to charge the police officer who killed Michael Brown, people all of a sudden said, said what? What do you mean? And who is this prosecutor? And why are they able to do this? And what is the grand jury? And how can this be? I mean, people started to then pay attention and to really realize how powerful prosecutors are. And I think people are beginning to pay attention to that. But I think for the most part, you know, people, as you say, we see police officers all the time. They're a big part, too much of a part of some communities' lives, lives, right? They're out on the street. They're everywhere. People know who they are, know what they do. But prosecutors, not so much, even though they're the officials who, in my opinion, are really running the system. So in what ways do they run the system? Let's say I am arrested for a crime, mm -hmm. drug possession or petty theft or, or something not huge, right? Not murder. I right. didn't kill anybody. Right. Good. <laughs> um, I come into the station house. Mm -hmm. Some set of things happens and the prosecutor gets involved when and how. Right. So you get arrested. The police officer, you know, you, you get brought down to the courthouse, probably put in a cell somewhere. The police officer goes and, and meets with the prosecutor. The prosecutor's looking at the paperwork, maybe look to see whether you have a record, finds out a little bit about the case. And the prosecutor at that point has a huge decision to make. And that is, am I going to dismiss this case right now and just not go forward with it, which they do with lots of cases? Or am I going to charge this person? And if I charge them, what am I going to charge them with? A lot of people think they always talk about the police officer charging you with something. Police officers don't charge people. They don't have that power. They recommend charges to the prosecutor. So the prosecutor then has to make that decision. Am I going to charge this person who was arrested with five bags of marijuana? And if I am, what am I going to charge them with? Well, if I charge them, I could charge them with possession of marijuana, which would be a simple misdemeanor in jurisdictions where that's still illegal. Or I can charge them because it's five bags. I could also charge them if I wanted to with possession with intent to distribute marijuana, which depending on the jurisdiction, that, that may be a felony, right? Same thing with other drugs. And so the, the, the penalty for those offenses, tremendously different, right? Um, and if it's a more serious drug, you could even be talking about mandatory minimum time in prison, 10, 20 years. So 
that's an amazing amount of power for this one person to be able to say, you get to go home. No, you get to stay in the system. And how do they make those decisions? When you say, how do they make those decisions? I mean, surely there's a published framework somewhere. A published framework. Well, okay. I'll, the published framework, I, I, there, there's one I can think of. So my first book was called Arbitrary Justice. And there's a reason I picked the word arbitrary. It's arbitrary justice, the power of the American prosecutor, because I really feel like it's very arbitrary. Now, I started to call it random just, justice, but my daughter said random had a strange connotation that I shouldn't use. But it's almost like that, because I think prosecutors... They're not required to follow any particular guidelines. There, there are guidelines published by the American Bar Association. They're called the Standards for the Prosecution Function. And they lay out guidelines that prosecutors should follow in making a decision about whether to charge a person or whether to give a plea offer. But they're not required to follow the ABA standards. I bet if you ask any prosecutor to tell you what those standards are, they wouldn't be able to tell you. They certainly don't sit down and go through the standards when they're making those decisions. Now, if the chief prosecutor of that office wanted to make that the policy for that office, he or she could do that. But I don't know of any of them who require their assistance to follow those standards. Let me give you an example of what some of those standards are. So, for example, one of the standards says when a prosecutor is deciding whether to charge a person, they should take into account the seriousness of the offense. That's one factor. The interest of the victim in prosecution is another factor. Whether the defendant has a criminal record, right? All of these make sense. So let's take the interest of the victim in prosecution. Let's say um, I'm arrested for assaulting my neighbor. And the neighbor who's the victim, the prosecutor will talk when there's a victim in a crime. The prosecutor is going to talk to the victim also because that's a factor to take into account in terms of am I going to go forward or not. If my neighbor says, you know what, I don't really, it's just a simple assault. I wasn't really hurt. I don't feel like coming to court. You know, if they just pay my medical bills, I'm, you know, good or whatever. I'm not interested. I I, I don't care. Well, the prosecutor doesn't have to follow that, but that's a good reason for the prosecutor to say, you know what, then fine. I'm going to let this case go. But there are ways, and that's a totally fair, race-neutral, class-neutral factor, right, that we would all agree is relevant. But there are racial implications and racial impacts to non-racial factors. So I give an example in my, in my chapter about how you might have two victims. And this happens all the time. Let's say you've got two victims. Both of them um, have their, their houses have been burglarized. One's a, a white, well-off attorney in Washington, D.C., um, his, his apartment was burglarized. So the prosecutor meets that person, talks to them. They thinks they'll make a great witness at the trial. They show up for the witness conferences. They show up for the grand jury all the time. They'll make a good witness. They want to go for it. The prosecutor says, "Okay, I'm gonna." The, the interest, the, the witness is interested. And another one of those factors I mentioned, by the way, you know, the likelihood of a conviction is something that the prosecutors are likely to take into account. Well, if I've got a good articulate witness, I'm likely going to get a conviction, right? Race, class has nothing to do with this, right? Nobody's talking about race. Nobody's talking about class. I'm going forward with that case. Case B, let's say someone who lives uh, in a housing project and their apartment's broken into and some costume jewelry and, a you know, uh, I don't know, a radio's taken. And there's an arrest. And 
the prosecutor tries to contact the victim. Victim doesn't show up for the witness conference. Well, they don't, they don't show up. Uh, and the prosecutor's like, look, they're not showing up. They must not be interested. I'm just going to dismiss this case. Well, maybe they didn't show up because maybe they didn't get the notice in the mail because their mail is still in. Maybe they didn't show up because they do day work and they can't afford to take the day off to come to a witness conference. Maybe they really are interested, but, you know, those circumstances cause them not to show up. Maybe they're afraid to show up because their kid was in the system and they don't want to go down to that prosecutor's office and they don't know what's going on. Or maybe they show up and they're not dressed quite as nicely as the lawyer and they're not quite as articulate and they can't quite tell their story the same way. The prosecutor's like, eh, this is not going to make such a great witness. I don't think I'll get a conviction, so I'm not going to anything with this case. So you can see how, you know, these are race-neutral factors, but they create racial disparities in our criminal justice system, whether we're talking about how victims are treated or defendants. Because I could tell the same story if we're looking at two defendants, you can see where that would go. All of the, again, it might be as a result of implicit bias by the prosecutor making a judgment. Maybe it's not implicit bias. Maybe it's just the very practical reality of I'm not going to get a conviction here, so I'm going to let this go. So the, my point I'm making here is this stuff is complicated. It's not simply, oh, the racist prosecutor is doing this. It's not that simple. But the bottom line is that the racial disparities that are produced are still unfair and they're still unwarranted. And so we still need to figure out a way to, to eliminate them in a very complicated system. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So I want to take one step back on this and, and, and just note a sort of hypothetical here. You could have perfectly equal policing, perfectly equal policing, the number of stops, of car stops, of searches, of everything, the people brought in for drug, everything is perfectly equal to the proportion of criminality or offense in that subpopulation. And still, if you have a prosecutorial system with this much discretion, 
you could have very unequal outcomes for reasons and others that, that, that you pin in. I just, I think it's important to say that because I think so many folks, including me for a long time, understand the system is being gate kept, if you can say that, uh, by police. And what you're saying is that there's a second level, a which second even if you can one. put a lot more, even if we can shine a lot more light on police, you can have body cameras and all these different things. Yes. If you don't fix a prosecutorial layer, you may not have even fixed the most central problem. I think that's right. I mean, we have that. That's where the power. Again, I don't want to minimize the fact that police officers have tremendous power and discretion on the street. My goodness, they are taking people's lives. So that's a, you know, I'm not minimizing that at all. But when we're talking about the disparities in the criminal justice system, the focus must be on prosecutors because I think that's where the problem is. But I think that's also where the solution is because if we get good progressive minded people who are thinking about prosecution in a different way, and in this last election, few of those prosecutors were elected. I think we can start to turn this thing around. If we got people, the chief prosecutor, if that chief prosecutor is thinking about prosecution in a different way, not thinking of her job as getting as many convictions as possible or locking up people, but thinking about ways of having a fair criminal justice system, maybe maybe they can make their goal. Let me see how many people I can keep out of the criminal justice. Let's let's I know this sounds like a crazy radical idea, but how about that? How about a prosecutor who would say, my job is to to make sure I reduce mass incarceration by keeping as many people out of the system as I can, right? That That's not as crazy as it, as it may sound. If we had that, I think we could start to turn things around because they could start making decisions, you know, not based on how many convictions I'm going to get, but, you know, how how can I have a fair system where I'm only incarcerating the most dangerous people who are posing a danger to the community and the rest of the people, let's resolve. They've done, they've committed a crime. They should be punished in some way, but maybe they don't have to be put in a cage, right? Maybe there's another way that they can be held accountable without removing them from their families and, you know, and feeding this horrible prison system that we have. So one issue that concerns me with this, right? And as you know, as you know, there are were a wave, maybe wave is a strong term, but there were a number of very progressive-minded prosecutors elected in the, the most recent election. I think yes. Philadelphia in particular had a very high-profile one. Yeah. And one thing that worries me about having prosecutors be elected officials is crime seems to me to be a place where when you're dealing with public opinion, you have to be very, 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 very risk-averse. I'll give an example that is not in the criminal justice system. Okay. There was a guy who brought some liquids on a plane once and did not manage to blow up a plane, but might have blown up a plane if he was allowed to to get further or if he was personally more competent. And ever since then, you cannot bring a tube of normal-sized toothpaste on a plane. Now, I think basically everybody agrees. There's no good evidence that these new TSA regulations keep us safer. We've looked at that at Vox. There isn't good evidence of it. And they're very annoying and people don't like them. And in theory, at some point in human history, you'd want to be able to ratchet back a little bit. But it doesn't look to me like we ever will because no politician wants her name on the bill that led to a plane getting blown up. And the the danger, it seems to me, with putting prosecution in making prosecutors an elected office in this way is that it's very hard to explain well, you know, in small, subtle ways, I'm trying to contribute to a fairer 
and more decent criminal justice system, whereas I declined to charge this one, or whereas your opponent's saying the prosecutor declined, Ezra declined to charge this guy, and he got out and committed a violent assault, is deadly. And how do you fix those incentives? Yeah. Well, what you're saying is, is that's the phenomenon that's been going on up to now. That is, prosecutors, that's why they were running on, I'm tough on crime, because that's what would get them the elect. They were afraid to be what they, what some would call soft on crime for the very reason you mentioned, suppose something happens and so on. I think this whole phenomenon of mass incarceration, the pain that it has caused so many families, and it's not just black families who, who've, you know, who have been affected by this, but I think people are beginning to see that, you know, the horrible consequences and the sheer unfairness of that. People are now becoming educated about it, so much so that you have bipartisan support, uh, both on the Hill and state and local level, for changing this, right? First of all, it's extremely expensive for people to think about things economically to lock up all these folks. And also so many families have been devastated by it. So I think people are starting to look at this in a different way. And this is evidenced by the fact that in this last election, I wouldn't quite call it a wave, as you say, but there were a significant number of prosecutors who were unseated, right? And not just unseated, but unseated by people who have a totally different vision, very similar to the vision I just mentioned before of prosecution. Aramis Ayala in Orlando, right, um, who, who's, who made a statement when she came out, I'm not seeking the death penalty, and, and, now, and was removed from all the death penalty eligible cases by the governor of Florida and is now suing the governor. So there's consequences to all of that. Uh, Kim Fox in Chicago, who unseated Anita Alvarez, who was the prosecutor in the uh, Laquan McDonald case, one of the young black men, who unarmed black men who was killed, and uh, Anita Alvarez, who, who sat on and hid the videotape that showed that. Kim Fox came in and unseated her. And Kim Fox, she, she is doing things differently around pretrial bail, diverting people out of the system. There are a number of these prosecutors who were elected. You know, and and you mentioned Philadelphia, Krasner, who I believe won the primary, was a criminal defense attorney, right? Craig Watkins, who's no longer in office in Dallas, but he was a criminal defense attorney and he became the first black DA, came in and opened an innocence project in his office where he basically went through all the homicide cases and said, I'm going to look at these again because I think they were unfair. These people are being elected, right? And so I think that says a lot when, you know, if you, if it, we, I've been studying this issue for, you know, over 20 years, and I'm pleasantly surprised to see that when people are told the truth about what's going on, you, if, if they're given information about it. And the other issue too, Ezra, is that so many families are themselves being impacted by these laws. They're personally being impacted by it. I mean, one of the issues in the criminal justice system is, you know, it's hard to get people to care unless they or a member of their family has been impacted by these uh, laws or been charged. But so many of them have been now that I think people are starting to look at this issue in a different way. So I actually feel optimistic uh, about that. The problem with the, the big problem in terms of electing uh, prosecutors is that, you know, running for office and our system that we have, it's expensive to run for office. It's hard to unseat an incumbent, whether you're talking about a congressperson or a prosecutor. 
uh, and this wave, at least some of them, of course, they were funded by this initiative that was funded by George Soros. I don't know if you know about that, where he basically funded these PACs, uh, political action committees, uh, in jurisdictions where there were prosecutors who were um, behaving in ways that were, um, you know, engaging in misconduct or, you know, really bad prosecutors, I would call them. And the PACs, uh, you know, the political action committees helped to get these new progressive folks elected. So, you know, it's not easy to run for office. It's not easy to unseat an incumbent, but it's happening. And when it happens, I, you know, it gives me hope. To broaden out a little bit from prosecutors, one of the things I feel whenever I focus in on criminal justice and the system broadly compared to other policy issues I study is there is a real lack of consensus on what we are trying to do. Uh, I had Nika Tapia-Jones on recently, who's a, a, a mental health professional, who's the first psychologist to run a major jail. She's running Cook County Jail. And I asked her, you know, what is, what is jail for? What are we trying to do there? And, you know, aside from lock people up, it gets very hard to say. Are we trying to punish? Are we trying to rehabilitate? Are we? Are, what indicator are we watching? Is it recidivism? Is it crime rates? Is it... What? And and it seems to me that one of the difficulties in the broader policy conversation here is different people have really different goals for the system. Some people want to improve communities. Some people want to keep them and their families safe. Some people just don't want to worry anymore. Some people want to right historical wrongs. I mean, what kind of risk tolerance do you have? This is a place where, unlike in healthcare, where I think in theory, at least, people want to cover as many folks as possible with as good healthcare as possible for as little money as possible. There is a conversation that is much more right now about means than it is about ends, possibly because a conversation about ends is so immature and so divisive that it just seems better to people to, to skip it altogether for the moment. But but I'm curious if you feel there's more convergence there. I'm curious if you think that we are coming to a more holistic view of what our justice system is supposed to do than we've had in the past. That's an interesting question that I hadn't thought about, but I'll think about it right now. Um, I don't think we are coming to a convergence. I, I, I agree with your initial statement. I think people have very different philosophies of punishment, have different philosophies of the purpose of the criminal justice system. There are people, you know, I teach criminal law and I, one of the fundamentals I teach is, you know, what are the purposes of punishment? So I teach my students, you know, there are a number of purposes of punishment. There's retribution, right? An eye for an eye, you did something, so I'm just going to get you back, right? Rehabilitation, we, we want to fix the person, we want to help to reform them. Incapacitation, we just want to get you away from me and lock you up because you're dangerous and we want you away. But at any rate, there, there are many different purposes of punishment. And I think people have different views. I, for example, do not believe in retribution. I don't believe it. It is a legitimate purpose of punishment, right? You know, you know an eye for an eye. You know, Jesse Jackson used to say an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth leaves us all blind and toothless, right? What is the point of that? Justice Marshall, before he died in some of his dissents and death penalty cases, talked about the illegitimacy of retribution, right? So I don't think we have a consensus about that. I think people have very different views about that. Um, and, and so how do we resolve that? And I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, I think our democracy 
is really, you know, the answer to that, our, our broken, imperfect democracy, right? Um, you know, we, we live in, you know, we elect people to office who, you know, we hope share the views that we share who are going to implement the policies we want implemented, right? Um, you know, it's important for people to to vote, to be aware of who their state legislators are because they're the ones who are passing these laws. And again, getting back to the prosecutor, to put people in office who have the views that we have. And I think it's up to those who are running for office to really um, convince the public, you know, that the philosophy or the policies they want to set forth are the right ones. You know, it again, you know, prosecutors, police officers, they are law enforcement officers. And I'm not sitting here saying that we should, you know, that that's not important. Public safety, of course, is very important. Uh, no prosecutor is going to implement a policy that is going to make their communities less safe. But it's so clear that there's so many ways we could be doing this differently that could both keep us safe or at least have no impact on public safety, not make it worse, but also be humane, right, and keep families together, right? Because it's not just those families who suffer when we break up families and lock up mothers and fathers. You know, it's it's the it's society as a whole. I'm curious how you think about the public opinion side of this. So, you know, when I was tracking this issue just a couple of years ago, 2014, 2015, 2016, we seem to be watching a real sea change in how you could talk about this in American politics. You had President Obama, the first African-American president, who spoke about this from a very different vantage point. You had the very high-profile police killings, the Black Lives Matter movement. You had in the Senate tremendous bipartisan action on criminal justice reform in a way that we hadn't expected. Mm -hmm. Eric Holder as an activist attorney general on these issues. In the states, a tremendous amount of progress is being made. And that era resolves nationally, if not on every state level, into – Donald Trump giving a convention speech that was really a recapitulation of Richard Nixon's law and order themes into the Blue Lives Matter movement, into what looks to me like backlash and retrenchment, which makes me think that the politics of this are very, very, very fragile. Um, that both small changes in the crime rate, which we did see a change in the crime rate, uh, can unwind a lot of progress very quickly. Uh, if for some reason we began seeing a very big change in the crime rate, it would do a lot of damage. Uh, but then also that it's very easy for people to get scared. It's very easy for them to feel under threat. It's very, the policemen's union prosecutors are, are trusted players in, in American politics. How do you look at that now? How do you look at what happened in the aftermath of that in politics and see the path going forward? Yeah, it's, you know, it's puzzling. It's shocking, right? Because, you know, um, when, when Obama was president and, and you know, Eric Holder, um, who I've known for many years and who was the U.S. attorney when I was the public defender, um, who became a very pro lot more progressive as attorney general and, and, and was a wonderful attorney general who really turned things around. Loretta Lynch continued that. Um, the bipartisan support is shocking to me now to see how Sessions is trying to totally undo what's being done, what, what was done by those two right, attorneys. I should have general, mentioned Sessions, right? yeah. Yeah. Eric Holder, who, you know, ordered the um, 
the, the U.S. attorneys, his U.S. attorneys, not to charge at the highest level and not to go for the most the mandatory minimums and to stop doing that. And Sessions comes in and says, charge at the highest level. And it's baffling and maddening because we now have evidence, right, to show that that doesn't work. What he's telling them to do really flies in the face of what the truth and evidence has shown us, what years of study have shown us about these laws and about how they don't help. I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense. So how do, how do I make sense of that? How do I deal with that? You know, first of all, my hope is that, you know, they're not going to be there much longer. And, you know, I'm hoping that Mr. Mueller is doing his job. And I'm just hoping that that's gonna, they're going to be gone soon. I really believe that. That's a whole other story. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I, I have hope in a, in a number of ways. One of the things Sessions tried to do, for example, is to undo the consent decrees that were passed in, for example, Baltimore and in um, Ferguson. So when those awful killings happened, Freddie Gray, and Michael Brown, the feds came in. Eric Holder did not bring federal charges because the laws, it's really hard to bring federal charges. But what they did was they investigated those cities and those police departments, and they found horrible, horrible violations of the Constitution by police departments in particular. If people who have not read those reports should read them, they are shocking. And what they did was they entered into what's called consent decrees, these agreements between the federal government, the Justice Department, and those local police departments that they would fix those problems and stop violating the Constitution, and they would be watched by the Justice Department. And if they violated them, then they would come in. Well, those consent decrees were passed in both. Sessions is now saying, I want to undo those. So far, he's not been able to do that. The judge in Baltimore said no. So I guess what I'm saying is, I, you know, I don't think Sessions hasn't been able to do yet what he's claiming to do. I have some faith in, you know, there's some good federal judges that are preventing him from doing it. He's going to do some harm, but not undo everything. But I get back to my original point. 10%, which is a pretty small percentage of all criminal cases, are in federal court. The other 90% are on the state and local level. And if we keep electing good progressive people, I'm not saying we're doing it in all the states, but we have the ability on the state and local level, right, to to elect good prosecutors, good officials. If I can interrupt you, I guess the question I'm asking is a little bit more about your sense of public opinion and its fragility, which is to say that one thing that I took from the election, and, and obviously elections have a lot of contributors and a lot of factors in them, but as soon as there felt people felt under some threat, as soon as the crime rate began to move a little bit, as soon as people uh, began to get a bit afraid, as soon as there was a backlash from policemen and you know sort of associated law and order factions in American politics, the politics of this got very thorny um, very, very quickly, which makes me wonder, if you had, even if you began, even if you continue making progress in the state and, and local level, if we see a crime rise or, or something else, how do you protect those gains? But also, how do you keep them going? I mean, and this maybe goes to the point about there not being consensus on what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. It seemed that at a time when everything was calm in the crime rate, people were willing to allow some movement on the on the politics and policy here. But it it was shot down really quick. Right. And I mean, I'm, I need to be more familiar with those polls because I'm not convinced that the majority of people have the views that you have. I mean, I think there's a vocal, loud group of people who have those views. I'm not sure, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I haven't seen the polls, that 
the vast majority of people want to turn back the clock on where we were going with criminal justice. I'm not seeing that. I mean, I, I don't know if that's what the polls are showing, but I would be surprised if that were the case. So I'm not sure all the, yes, there's some public opinion. There are some people in politics who are pushing back. I'm not sure that's the majority of people. And I think what we have to do is continue to educate people about what the facts are here. Right. We don't do it. And, and the public can be a little lazy about learning the facts. I mean, we have to make sure people understand the facts and are making their decisions and and also forming their opinions based on facts and not on fear. And I think that's hard to do, but that's what people like me and people who write books and people who talk and try to educate the public about what the facts are. Because if you look at what the facts are, I, I think a lot of that fear is unwarranted. A side of this is that and, and the book gets into this at different points, that in many Black communities, the relationship with particularly police has become so strained. Those communities are a lot less safe than they could otherwise be. They're, they're both over-policed and in important ways under-policed. And it seems to me that there, if you could, it's a hard needle to thread, but that there's a version of this that is, is pretty win-win where if you could improve those relationships, if you could make people feel like the state was more on their side and more there to protect them, they could be a lot safer with a more compassionate form of, of enforcement and, and justice administration. And, and I'm curious if you see hope on that front. I'm curious if you see communities where that has changed or models for success. I don't know if I can talk about models of success. I, I think I can talk about what I believe are some things we can do that I have hope will cause change, right? Um, so uh, Tracy Mears in her chapter about policing, she served on President Obama's task force on policing, and she talks about procedural justice, right? About how people, what people want, the studies show that what people want to, to know is that they're being treated fairly, right? They want to be treated fairly, this, this notion of procedural justice. When people don't think they're treated fairly, then they're not going to cooperate with the police and this terrible you know, relationship is going to continue. So I do think that with some training, I do, I know that sounds trite, but I do think training, not just training in, in that way, but implicit bias training, I think is incredibly important. You know, Catherine Russell Brown talks about that training. It actually, when it's done right, it works. Um, so that police officers can become aware of that bias. And there's ways, once they become aware of that, that they can be trained to behave differently. I think a lot of that has to happen. And I think when that happens, I think there is hope for progress. But, but, I, but I think, you know, when people continue to see very basic unfairness, and we haven't talked about it very much, but it was really the inspiration for the book, which is this, these killings, right? Police officers not only racially profiling, but also using deadly force against unarmed, non-threatening people. And they see this happening over and over again without accountability. It's, it's going to be very, very hard for there to be any kind of good relationship between police officers in these communities because people are not seeing fairness. They're not seeing accountability. And that has to change, I think, before that relationship changes. One driver of this conversation in, in the last couple of years has been these killings of young black men, often unarmed young black men, Tamir Rice and Eric Garner, by police. And we've not seen police prosecuted, jailed, punished for, for these killings uh, oftentimes. Why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that was actually the inspiration for this book, right? Um, we, 
these killings have been going on since slavery, right? Of, of black people of color, particularly black men and boys, being killed by the police or by individuals who took the law into their own hands. And, you know, police officers would often say, you know, the person was attacking me, they had a gun, and they'd be lying. And people from the community knew that, but they could never prove it. It's been going on since slavery up to the present day. Um, the thing that's as frustrating and, and infuriating as these young black men and boys being killed is the fact that these officers, as you pointed out, many times, most times, have not been charged. And even when they have been, they've not even been convicted. And so what's infuriating about it now, especially, is that we can see, because we, through videotape, through cell phone cameras, we saw Eric Garner being choked to death, right, before our eyes and saying he couldn't breathe. We saw Tamir Rice playing with a toy gun and being shot by the police. We saw Walter Scott running away and being shot in the back. And yet those police officers in two of those cases weren't charged and in the case of Walter Scott was not convicted. Why is that? I think, you know, one of the reasons, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, the law, right? The law gives police officers a great leeway in using deadly force. If you and I, we are permitted by the law actually to use deadly force, ordinary citizens. If we're in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death, we can kill someone in self-defense because the law says that person's life is no more valuable than our own. Police officers, however, the law permits them to use deadly force in a wide, much wider range uh, of circumstances. So there was a case decided back in 1985 by the United States Supreme Court called Tennessee versus Garner, which basically said that police officers can use deadly force to stop a fleeing felon if it's necessary to do so to stop them and if they have probable cause to believe that that person poses a danger to the police officer or others. That's still very broad, right? It doesn't say the person has to be armed. It doesn't say that the person has to be attacking them. It leaves a lot of discretion to the police officer to decide whether or not the person poses a danger. And the court has decided several cases since then, Graham versus Connor, Scott versus Harris, which has made it even easier, this broad reasonableness standard. If it's with a reasonable officer feel that he needed to use deadly force under those circumstances. So that leaves a lot of discretion to the police officer. And I think what has happened in the few cases that have actually gone to trial, I've read where these jurors have come out saying, we feel terrible that we, you know, that we acquitted, but we had no choice because the law required us to do that. The law required us. We had no choice. That actually isn't true. What the law says is that, you know, that's the law, but you don't have to believe the police officer. So if a police officer gets on the stand, if that police officer who killed Philando Castile, for example, who went from zero to 100 in a matter of seconds, right, when Philando Castile clearly wasn't attacking him, if he says, I feared for my life, the jurors don't have to credit that, right? Most judges will say, you know, you're the judge of the credibility of the witnesses. But I think people, you know, uh, are crediting police officers when they're saying they're afraid instead of looking at what that officer did and saying, was it really reasonable for this police officer to be in fear of a person who was running away, to be in fear of someone who was on the ground choking? Was that reasonable? Right. And, and for whatever reason, in the very few cases that have gone to trial— 
Um, you know, that hasn't happened. I believe there's only been one conviction of a police officer, and that was a case in Brooklyn involving really one, not even one of the most heinous cases where it was an accidental killing in a darkened stairwell in Brooklyn. Uh, Ken Thompson was the prosecutor. There was a manslaughter conviction. The police officer got, he was an Asian police officer who killed a black person in a darkened stairwell. Most people don't know about that case. He was found guilty and he got probation. But in none of these other cases that have gone to trial has there been a conviction. Either it's been not guilty or a hung jury. And in the vast majority of them, there hasn't even been a charge. And that gets back to the prosecutors who have decided not to indict. So let me ask you the, the question we used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have, that have influenced you, that have mattered to you, that you'd recommend to the audience? So there are a lot of books I've read that have influenced me, but the three that, that like most recently I've read, the number one book is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I think everybody in this country needs to read this book, whether you care about the criminal justice system or not. I mean, the book is beautifully written. It's about his work at the Equal Justice Institute, but he tells the stories of individuals in the system who've been treated unfairly, either because they've been wrongfully convicted or just treated tremendously unfairly. Uh, and he he makes everyone see the humanity uh, in all of his clients and also the tremendous unfairness. So I, that book, I would say, number one. Um, Another book that just disturbed me and depressed me, but I, I really, you know, just impacted me was The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace by Jeff Hobbs. That book is just a true story about uh, this young African-American man, brilliant man who, you know, grew up in a really impoverished community, but was talented and was given great opportunities. But his life ended up, you know, ending in a very tragic way because he made some decisions that are just baffling and it's a disturbing book, but I think it's an important book. Um, and, and then finally, um, Justice Sotomayor's memoir, um, My Beloved World, is really impacted me in ways that I was surprised by. I knew her story, how she grew up, the difficulties that she faced. Um, but I think, you know, reading a book about someone from a different culture, me as an African-American, I grew up poor and I faced a lot of the same challenges. I grew up in a household, you know, with parents who didn't finish college, all of those things. But Seeing, you know, how someone else from a different culture had that same experience, and in many ways her life was even harder than mine, and I was really surprised by that. She tells her story beautifully and is amazingly candid about the struggles that she faced and how hard she had to work to get where she is today, and very revealing in terms of, I think, the type of justice that she's become. So um, I love that book as well. Angela Davis, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Angela Davis for being on the program. Uh, I found that very helpful. I hope you did too. Thank you to my producers, Bert Pinkerton and Jillian Weinberger. Thank you to you, all of you who come here every week and listen and, and try to learn along with me. I'm always grateful that you're here. Uh, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. We'll be back next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.